Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, We're in a series called uh, Finding Jesus in Genesis. Uh, In other words, what we're doing in this series is we're uh, kind of flexing our interpretive muscles as we learn to read the entirety of the Bible in light of Jesus Christ. Uh, The tradition that was handed down by Jesus to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, and then later picked up by the apostles, and then the early church fathers and mothers, uh, was to read all of the Bible with Christ as the interpretive center. Uh, So to read the Bible as a Christian is not necessarily to begin with page one and then wait till all the end of all the way to the end of Malachi until we meet this person named Jesus. To read the Bible as a Christian means to begin with the revelation of who God is in Christ and then go back and read the entirety of the Old Testament through the interpretive lens of Christ. Uh, now this kind of reading of scripture uh, stands on two primary convictions. The first is that Jesus is the full revelation of who God is, that God is like Jesus. Uh, Or as the scripture says, Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's what the preacher says in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The second conviction that this way of reading and interpreting scripture, the second conviction that it stands on, is that the Bible does not bear witness to itself. Uh, That the Bible does not claim that the Bible is the final authority. What the Bible claims is that Jesus, the living word, is the final authority. So the Bible points beyond itself to the living word who is Christ. And what this ultimately means then uh, is that we can read the whole of scriptures and expect to find Jesus, even in the Old Testament. Um, Yes and amen, right? Uh, so, in the first week of this series, we found that Jesus, uh, we found Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. In, first, in the first three verses, we found Jesus. And we discovered that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, is the creator of the universe. That Jesus, uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Word of God, is the creative agent or the agent of creation uh, in Genesis 1. We also learned that Genesis 1, the narrative uh, tells us that each day creation is good. Uh, And so what we took from that is that the world, this world, springs out of goodness. That it was created not out of conflict. Remember how we talked about how uh, in all other creation stories that were popular in in the ancient Near East, uh, there was always the presence of good and evil from the very beginning? And that creation springs out of conflict between good and evil. But in the biblical narrative, in Genesis 1, evil is not present. There is no evil. So creation doesn't come out of conflict, uh, but creation springs out of goodness, out of the goodness of God. And so we recognize Jesus as creator, essentially pointing us to the reality that our posture toward creation then should be one of awe, respect, and care. I hope that some of you have had some time over the past couple of weeks to maybe walk or drive or recreate or simply sit in the beauty of creation uh, that is all over our city. 
Maybe you even had time to get out to the mountains or spend some time on the river. Uh, just taking in uh, the beauty of creation, especially during this time of year. Today what we're going to do uh, is we're going to find Jesus in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Now, it's important to note that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell two distinct uh, narratives of creation. These are two creation accounts. The first account, Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2 verse 3. Uh, in this account, you have the separating, the filling, like we talked about last week. Uh, you have the humans as the pinnacle of creation, the final priests of creation before God takes his rest on the seventh day. But Genesis chapter 2 tells a different uh, order of creation and a different creation narrative altogether. So I want to read a portion of uh, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you can turn there or click there, or it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, but Genesis chapter 2, I want to begin in verse 4. That's where the second creation account begins in verse 4. I'll read through verse 7, and then I'll pick it up at verse 18 through 23. So Genesis chapter 2, let's jump around a little bit. But beginning in the second half of verse 4, it says this. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and the water uh, and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now let's pick it up at verse 18. Uh, then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, but I will make a helper as his partner. So that out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, then that was its name. Man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air, to every animal of the field, for the man there. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed it in the place of his flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man was taken this one. Therefore, man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. The man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, two distinct creation accounts, different from one another, and that serve different theological purposes. Uh, now, this is really important. If we are reading Genesis as we should, which is as theological texts, uh, then the differences in creation that they pose, uh, that they have, actually poses no problem or threat. Uh, however, if we read it as an encyclopedia of the origins of the universe, as, as some have done, uh, then you find yourself in a position of trying to harmonize the two creation accounts and try to make them make, have them make sense of one another even when they don't match. Uh, for example, in the first account, humans are the pinnacle of creation. So they enter a world that is already filled with vegetation and with animals. But in the second account, 
human beings are the first that are created before any plants, before any animals. In Genesis 1, uh, male and female are created at the same time. In Genesis 2, Eve only comes after a suitable mate could not be found for Adam in all the rest of creation. And of course, that is only the start of the problems. Uh, if we try to read this text scientifically or as an encyclopedia for the history of the universe, but if we're reading these texts as we should, which is theologically, then we can recognize that each creation account is seeking to teach us something different. And so the point simply is this, uh, don't read Genesis trying to look for proof of modern science, uh, but rather enter the world of the text and seek to find meaning in it, okay? That's really, really important when we're reading and interpreting ancient texts, especially the book of Genesis. So what I want to do is I want to make a couple of short observations about this, and then we'll find Jesus, okay? Sound good? So let me make a couple of short observations about Genesis chapter 2. First, the what the Bible in the NRSV that I read translates as man is actually the Hebrew word Adam. And the Hebrew word Adam means humanity. Okay? And the Hebrew word Eve means life. So when we read Genesis 2 theologically, we are reading about the, the representative couple of all of humanity and of life. Humanity and life, a representative couple, okay? So that's what we're reading. Now, the Hebrew word for dust or ground, when we read in Genesis chapter 2 at the beginning, where God forms Adam, humanity, out of the dust, the Hebrew word for dust or ground or soil is Adama. So you have Adam out of the Adama, okay? Adama, ground soil, Adam, humankind, Adam, out of the Adama. So from that, let me make this point. Human beings are a synthesis of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. That we are in very real and very tangible ways connected to all of creation. We share the very same materials that we find in the earth and creation are found in our bodies is the very thing that makes us up, are the same materials that we find in the earth. So we are intricately connected to all of creation. And yet, we also share and have received the very breath of God. We are made of the dust, therefore connected to creation. And at the same time, we are deeply spiritual beings. All throughout human history, humanity has always been inclined toward worship. We live our lives on the earth, dependent upon the, the food and material of the earth, but all while seeking connection and communion with the divine. So we are capable of living in the spirit on the earth. We are capable of living spiritual lives while firmly rooted and grounded in creation. Amen. This is why when we see Genesis and we understand it 
as a theological text, it sets a basis for how we are going to then understand the nature of the good news, which is creation has been called good. We ourselves come out of creation. And so the good news is not that in the end creation will be abandoned in favor of a purely spiritual existence. No, the good news is that God in Jesus Christ intends to remake all of creation, make it new and give us new resurrected bodies. Amen. Right? That's basic fundamental Christianity that we've got to get right. And we see it right here in Genesis. So this synthesis of the spiritual, the deeply spiritual, breathed into by the very breath of God and yet connected to the creation because we're formed out of the dust, the Adam, out of the Adamah, is unique in all of creation. There is no other creature of, about which this is said. God breathed the breath of life into us and it became a living soul, as some, as some translations will say. So we are rooted and grounded on earth, but capable of spiritual living. Have you noticed that much of Christian faith uses earthly material to point us to and to demonstrate and to symbolize deep spiritual truths? The Christian tradition has taken earthly materials that then symbolize deep spiritual truths or point us to deep spiritual truths so that when we want to symbolize new life in Christ and welcome and belonging into the community of faith, we dunk people under water in the waters of baptism, right? Something very tangible, something of creation, and we say this represents something truly spiritual and significant. And every single week, we gather around a table of bread and juice to encounter the living Christ. Every single week, we do this. And we say that there's something about the bread and the juice these very tangible, very necessary kind of materials of creation that we quite depend on for our physical sustenance. And yet we say that these things can point us to something deeply spiritual and deeply true. People go out into nature, have a spiritual experience, a divine experience, or an experience of and with the divine. And it, it's this, this matching of that which is rooted in creation and material things, right? Very tangible, physical things. But a deep spiritual experience. This all happens and is made possible because we are humanity out of the, out of the dust. Adam out of the Adama. That's the first thing I want to point out. The second observation is that the original human vocation to steward creation that was given to us in Genesis chapter 1 is given us, uh, to us again in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 says, The Lord God took man, put him in the garden to till and to keep it. So the Lord God formed humanity out of the dust, out of the ground, and then he played, God placed humanity in the garden and said, It is now your role, your job, your, your uh, vocation to till and tend the garden. 
to organize creation in such a way that that creation will continue to bear fruit, that it will continue to be sustainable. So organize things, bring them together, build cities, create cultures. This is good, God-honoring things, right? That when you think about your work, like what you do for a living, how you get a paycheck, in one way or another, it is the ordering of creation for the good of our shared humanity. Sometimes that comes through engineering, designing, taking the materials of the earth so that when you take those materials, you get an iPhone, right? Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's working with people so that you can, as people are, are doing this, you work directly with people in human services so that there's a, a, the, a good around for all of people. So they can be educated, right? Teachers. So that they can provide spiritual direction. So that they can have health care. So there's all these things. But what we do in some way for work is rooted and grounded in this very first vocation, which is to order creation in such a way that it aligns with God's will for human flourishing. Yes and amen. Right? And this is the original vocation, and it hasn't been rescinded. The Lord God placed man in the garden of Eden to tend over it and to watch it. Humankind is, to get, is given this vocation to care for God's creation. Think of it this way. All of you have been hired on as original park rangers over Earth National Park. <laughs> right? I know you've always wanted to wear that brown hat. Okay? So wear it with pride, Christians. <laughs> we are park rangers over Earth National Park. And of course, that's a silly thing, but think about a park ranger. A park ranger is given charge over land to protect it and to care for it. And in the same way, uh, we, are to do, we are to do just that. So creation care is not really a political issue. It's a theological issue. Uh, yes and amen. How many amens have I given myself so far today? That's quite a bit, I think. More than usual. More than usual. Uh, so, uh, well, we can't help but talk about Adam and Eve uh, without talking about Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 2, it's all still good news. Everything is great. Evil is not yet present. There's no problem in creation. We've got this real great ordering, this this. A uh, great relationship between God and creation and God and humanity and humanity and life are there. They're tending the garden. All is good. But let's talk about Genesis chapter 3. Um, the Bible is not a textbook of God facts. Nor is the Bible an encyclopedia of pithy truth propositions. Whoa. <laughs> It's not an encyclopedia of God, God facts, and it's not uh, a collection of pithy truth propositions. The Bible tells, ultimately, an epic story of how God overcomes evil and death. That's the Bible. The Bible is a story of how God ultimately overcomes evil and death. And every epic story has antagonists, bad guys right? Every epic story has bad guys. And uh, when you think about Lord of the Rings, that's a pretty epic story. Uh, the Lord of the Rings has Sauron, Saruman, and all the orcs to go with it. Uh, the MCU, that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for those of you who aren't like in the club or whatever. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, has Loki, Ultron, Thanos, and others. Harry Potter must defeat Voldemort. Skywalker must defeat uh, Darth Vader, 
and Rey must defeat Kylo Ren. Every epic story has an antagonist against which the heroes must struggle in order to bring about uh, or fulfill their destiny or to bring about, think about it this way, to bring about a new world. Okay? Every epic story has an antagonist against which the heroes must struggle in order to bring about a new world. Now, all of these stories, these epic stories in our culture, they all borrow from the great story. Which is not so much story, which is not just a story on pages of an ancient book, but it is quite literally the story in which we find ourselves. I don't know that I would say this in children's church quite yet, but the reason that every story, every show on Disney Plus has a villain is because your life has a villain. The story in which we find ourselves has an enemy, someone against whom we must struggle in order to participate with God to bring about new creation. And of course, as we read about the humanity, as we read about the story of Scripture, we find that this epic story has antagonists, right? The Bible has lots and lots of antagonists, and all of the antagonists in the Scriptures are all minions of what is known in Hebrew as Hasatan, or the Satan. Okay, all the antagonists in Scripture are minions of the Satan. Whatever whatever images you have of the Satan or the devil, uh, probably a red guy, cute face, pitchfork. Uh, like take that out of your mind, right? Uh, evil is usually not so on point like that. It's much more subtle, <laughs> uh, and, and so we have. Uh, we have this evil, this minion, this antagonist, the Satan. And the first antagonism that we find is Genesis chapter 3. Hasatan appears as a serpent. Now, we don't know this until much later when we find out that the serpent is actually the evil one. Uh, but the Satan appears as a serpent. He approaches this first couple, this representative couple, um, humanity and life, Adam and Eve, and he approaches them with, let's say, for the Lord of the Rings fans, the counsel of worm tongue. <laughs> Ill counsel, uh, bad advice, a devious lie. And Adam and Eve, they believe this lie, and sin enters the story. The good creation is stained. Death enters the story. Fear and shame enter the story, as experienced, as evidenced by this first representative couple hiding from God, fear, and then covering themselves in front of one another, shame. Fear and shame enter the story. Creation is stained. Death enters the story. The consequences are severe, and they're laid out in a series of poems in Genesis chapter 3. To Eve, it says this, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. To Adam, 
The consequence is this, or the judgment is this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So to Adam, there's toil of the land, fruitless labor, to Eve, pain and childbearing, and to both, there is exile from the garden. They're kicked out. There's exile from the garden and an inevitable return to the dust. From the dust you were made. And after sin, death, fear, shame enter the story, it means now there is an inevitable return to the dust. And then to the serpent. To the serpent, we have this little poem. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I want you to catch this because remember, we're coming to, to Genesis and we're looking for Jesus and we're expecting to find Jesus. And here, when sin, death, fear, and shame have entered the story, an inevitable return to the dust, and there's consequences, there's judgment proclaimed to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent. To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and he will strike his heel, and you will strike his heel. There's offspring that comes from the woman Eve that will strike down the serpent but will be wounded in the process. Are you with me? This verse is known as the proto-evangelium. Okay, Jay, you want to show that word for us? The proto-evangelium. That's a pretty fancy word, wouldn't you say? Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning, being from the Greek euangelion, which means good news. Proto evangelium means the first good news. <laughs> yes, right? So check this first good news. So right after sin, death, shame, and fear enter the story through the antagonist, the scripture offers us hope that one day all the work of, of mischief, all the work of twisting the truth, all the work of conniving of the Satan will be undone by the seed of the woman who will strike the head of the serpent but be wounded in the process. Oh, come on, somebody. All right. So, now we don't normally talk about the seed of a woman. We talk about the seed of a man. So this is one who will come from a woman without the aid of man who will crush the head of the serpent. Church, this is where we find Jesus in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 in the story of Adam and Eve. Right after the bad news of humanity being exiled and subject to death, there is a promise and hope 
of redemption. Right after creation goes wrong because of fear and shame, we are made aware of the power of love. If we don't read the Bible through the lens of Christ, we will surely have missed it. But here it is, in riddle form, a little bit obscure, but it's there, the very first good news, the proto-evangelium. Um, sometimes in the world, it feels like all bad news. Uh, sometimes the world in which we live can feel a lot like Genesis 3 where it's just things are running amok. Fear, shame, death, sin, all these things are running rampant in our lives. We feel it in our hearts. We see it in our world. And we look and we say, where in the world is the good news? I submit to you today that the good news of Jesus is there. Sometimes it's obscure. Sometimes it may come to us as a riddle. But I think Genesis 3 shows us that even in the midst of when it seems like everything is going haywire, God is at work bringing about salvation, bringing about new creation. There is always an antagonist against which heroes must struggle in order to bring about new Creation And the promise of Genesis 3 when everything is going haywire is that the work will be done. Church, we have the great advantage of having, having experienced or having the confidence that the work is in fact done. That it was completed on the cross. That we serve a crucified and resurrected Christ. And because of that, we can say that what was accomplished at the cross, what was verified in the resurrection, will one day come to pass. That the victory has been won, but the victory hasn't yet been realized. And so we can look at the proto-evangelium, the very first sign of good news, and also in light of the good news of the, of the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that we know from our New Testaments, and then we can say, the whole world may seem like it's going amok, and things in my life seem to be twirling around, and my faith itself feels really shaky, but thanks be to God, I have a foundation upon which I can stand. And that is the hope of new creation, that God has in fact completed the work on the cross and it is yet to be realized. And so we can have hope. That's what I want to do this morning is to give you hope. Now, this sermon, I'm afraid, could be much, much longer because this is not the only place that we find Jesus in, in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. We can find Jesus as the creator who comes in search of lost humanity. We could find Jesus as a new kind of Adam, that where, where humanity, the very genesis of humanity, right, the Adam, failed, the New Testament theologians will say Christ is the new Adam, the new birthplace of of a new humanity. Which is why Paul will say, 
race and gender and social class, all these things have no bearing because our original ancestor is Jesus, the progenitor, the beginning of a new humanity. So we could find Jesus in the new Adam. But this morning, I want us to focus on the beauty of the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, you could feel free to drop that in conversation with your friends, too. Like, just be like, hey, you know what I learned about in church today? The Proto-Evangelium. Bet you wish you were at church, right? Ah, uh-huh. see? You could use that as an opportunity to invite your friends. <laughs> uh, I came across a painting several years ago. I want to show it to you. Maybe you've seen it. But I think it's so, it fits so well uh, this morning. Jay, you got that? I don't know if you've seen this kind of making its rounds on social media, but this is a picture of Eve on the left with the serpent wrapped around her leg. She's holding the fruit in her hand. And then it's Mary on the right um, expecting. And I know, it's not, I know it's not exactly clear on the screens, but if you look at Mary's left foot, she's crushing the head of the serpent. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting. It's actually, actually quite new. It's not that, it's not that old. Uh, it came from a Catholic sister just a few years ago who later wrote a poem and I have this on the screens too, but actually, Jay, I want to I continue. Actually, let's just show the picture, and I'll read the poem. So let's show the painting, and then I'll read the poem to you. O Eve, my mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed, do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child through whom all will be reconciled. O Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever life without end. Thanks be to God. May you find comfort today in the Proto-Evangelium that God is at work uh, even when things seem to be going all amok. Amen. Gracious God, thank you for the beautiful talents of our Catholic sister who painted this, whose name slips me at the moment. God, thank you for the beautiful truth of Genesis chapter 3 and this story of humanity and life, Adam and Eve. God, I pray that we would take from this um, encouragement that you are at work even when things seem to have gone all wrong and have gone all bad, uh, that you are working. Lord, thank you that we can read the scriptures, all of the scriptures, through the lens of Christ and begin to see and pick up the evidence of how Jesus and the work of Jesus has been completed on the cross and verified through the resurrection. So God, we give you thanks. We praise your holy name today. For you are good. You are with us. And we anticipate, God, 
new creation. We long for evidence of new creation even in our daily lives as we continue to live life through a pandemic. Lord, we pray for new creation as we struggle about what it means to be faithful people in this time and this place. We pray for new creation in our hearts, in our own lives, our own soul. So God, bring new creation, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.